Today's episode of Cold Case Frozen Tundra is sponsored by Podcorn, the online marketplace for both content creators and sponsors that cuts out the middleman, allowing direct collaboration without many of the typical restrictions you'd find elsewhere. We at Cold Case Frozen Tundra have been using Podcorn from the start. We love that their online platform makes it easy to see which sponsors are seeking to partner with shows like ours, quickly review the type of content they would like us to produce, whether it's a testimonial, a host-read ad, an interview segment, or a topical discussion, or some other creative collaboration, and then communicate directly with the brand managers to discuss whether we'd be a good match as partners in supporting their brand or product. We also love that Podcorn is able to accommodate podcasts and brands of all sizes. There's no middleman moderating the minimum size of show or minimum sponsor investment before podcasts or brands are allowed to participate. This means our sponsors can grow right along with us. We can always find a great partner for our podcast at any budget. And there's no one asking us to give away creative control of our show. If we run into any questions, Podcorn is always there for a quick and reliable support every step of the way. So, whether you're already a podcaster or someone who's interested in starting up a show of your own, or even a brand looking to sponsor shows like ours, we highly recommend Podcorn. Don't let anyone else control your partnerships. Collaborate with transparency and ease with Podcorn. This episode of Cold Case Frozen Tundra is sponsored by Badger State Brewing, makers of some of our favorite beers. Located right here in Green Bay, Wisconsin, only a short drive from where our stories take place, Badger State is brewing some of the best beer you'll find in Wisconsin or anywhere. That's right. Matt and I often joke that Badger State Brewing fuels all the work that we do. And the reason for that's simple. We love their beer. My all-time favorite beer, and I'm not saying this just because they're a sponsor, is Badger State's Grassy Place Hazy IPA. It's the perfect choice for sipping while, I don't know, you're listening to your favorite podcast or doing anything else. I love Grassy Place too. And when I'm in the mood for something a little lighter, I go for a brewski lager. It's an easy drinker, but with much more flavor than the alternatives you'd get elsewhere. Brewski is super crushable, especially on a nice hot summer day. Visit BadgerStateBrewing.com to see the recently expanded distribution locations. Check out the beer list, pick up some merch, and even order beer for pickup if you're in the local area. That's Badger, B-A-D-G-E-R, StateBrewing.com. Check them out on social media and let them know that Cold Case Frozen Tundra sent you. August 19, 1992. 20-year-old Lori Deppis leaves her job at the Fox River Mall in Appleton, Wisconsin, and drives to her boyfriend's apartment in Menasha, about 15 minutes away, where he and two of their friends await her arrival. They have plans to meet at the apartment, spend a short time hanging out, then go together to a friend's house to watch a movie. The group hears Lori pull into the parking lot around 10.15 p.m. as anticipated. They hear her shut off her distinctively loud vehicle, recognize the sound of Lori opening and closing her car door, and then they hear nothing 
at all. Lori doesn't come up to the apartment. She doesn't call up toward their balcony in her typically cheerful, bubbly tone. They don't see her standing near the car having a smoke or anything else. When the friends eventually head down to the parking lot to see what Lori's up to, they find something they never expected. She's simply gone. On top of Lori's car, a gray 1984 Volkswagen Rabbit, the group finds the last remaining indicator of her presence, a styrofoam soda cup set above the driver's side door, the ice inside still unmelted. It's the start of a mystery that would become one of the most famous unsolved cases in Wisconsin history, an incident that has shaped the culture of an entire region, touching countless lives, and an investigation that has spanned nearly three decades without any answers. Now, as the search for Lori approaches the 30-year mark, we are taking an in-depth look at the case, exploring every detail in the hope of uncovering answers that have been lost to time and bringing an end to a mystery that has impacted so many. I'm your co-host Matt Hiskus, and this is Cold Case Frozen Tundra, Season 2, Episode 1. Hello and welcome to the second season of the Cold Case Frozen Tundra podcast. I'm Dr. Jordan Karsten, your co-host along with Matt Hiskus in this search for answers in the nearly 30-year-old disappearance of Lori Deppis. To fully understand this case, we need to go back to the beginning, and that's exactly what we're going to do. But first, a little bit about who we are as your hosts. I have a PhD in anthropology, and in my day-to-day life, I'm an associate professor and the chair of the anthropology department at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh. My work in the field has led me to countless excavations in search of human remains, both in Wisconsin as well as at locations on the other side of the world. As an anthropologist, I seek answers through the analysis of the human skeleton. By applying scientific principles to the human remains that we unearth, we can learn important factors that tell us about the lives of individuals, when they were born and died, what they ate, their work and lifestyle, illness, medical conditions that they might have battled, whether they traveled or lived their life in one area, and in more modern contexts, clues that may point to their identity. While my academic research has been largely centered on excavation and analysis of ancient burials in western Ukraine, I'm also frequently asked to assist law enforcement here in the United States with investigations that involve the human skeleton. Sometimes I'm asked to consult on whether bones that have been discovered come from a human or a non-human animal. And to be honest, more often than not, they do come from a non-human animal of some kind. When the remains are determined to be human, however, I'm often asked to provide an opinion on many of the factors that could lead to a better understanding of the person that we found. The things that investigators often rely on as they build a case, things like age, ancestry, sex, height, physical trauma, and more. I'm also able to provide some important context as to whether the remains are modern or consistent with an indigenous or ancient burial. Understanding these details of skeletal remains is such a useful tool for investigators that I've in the past led field schools and continuing education courses for law enforcement members to help equip them with the initial identification skills, such as recognizing a human bone or determining if a bone's been broken and buried and other factors. 
It's my work on cases with law enforcement that's led me to develop a passion for locating and identifying the remains of those who have gone missing, and hopefully providing answers to those that they've left behind. And I'm Matt Hiskus. I'm a communications and media relations manager by trade, and when I'm not working on Cold Case Frozen Tundra, I'm usually busy writing, editing, or producing other content. Although it's not part of my day job, I'm very passionate about archaeology and the thrill of unraveling mysteries of the past. In addition to working on site during the first season of this show, I've accompanied Dr. Karsten and his team of anthropologists and students on three different expeditions to Ukraine, assisting in the excavation and documentation of remains and artifacts from thousands of years in the past. I'm glad to apply this experience and my communications expertise to this investigation into the disappearance of Lori Deppis. In Season 1 of Cold Case Frozen Tundra, we sought answers in the 1983 disappearance of Starkey Swenson, a 63-year-old Nina, Wisconsin resident who left home on his bicycle one August night and vanished without a trace. For nearly 38 years, that's how the case remained. No sign of Starkey's whereabouts or remains had ever been recovered. Our search for answers began with an in-depth review of the details of the case and helped reveal new and exciting leads. And this led us to conduct an archaeological excavation at a remote site in conjunction with law enforcement and with the help of my team of anthropology students. It was amid the climate of renewed community interest in the case that, in September 2021, two individuals hiking at nearby High Cliff State Park stumbled across human remains. I was called to excavate the bones and assist in their analysis and identification. By the end of last year, investigators had announced their confirmation that the remains were those of Starkey Swenson bringing an end to the 38-year mystery and providing very welcome answers to those who had searched for Starkey for decades. This case, The Disappearance of Lori Deppis, is similar to the Starkey Swenson case in that it, too, has revealed few clues and no answers, despite decades of dedicated search efforts. Like Starkey's family and friends, There are many close to Lori who maintain that her disappearance will be solved, who hold on to hope that a detail will be uncovered, one that will lead to the answers they seek and deserve. And as we did in our search for Starkey Swenson, we will begin our investigation by revisiting Lori's case in comprehensive detail. We'll speak with family, friends, and those close to the investigation in search of information that sparks a new lead in the case. We will discuss the developments that have occurred over the years, review insights that shed light on individuals who might have been involved, and, hopefully, uncover new details that lead us to a search which will help solve the mystery. Yeah, that's right. This is a case that has received significant attention over the decades of investigation. Beyond nearly constant local coverage in the years that followed her disappearance, Lori's story has been featured on many national broadcasts and even on a few podcasts, especially those that focus on providing the details of a new case each episode. With that said, there's never really been a single modern source that offers a comprehensive record of Lori's story, presenting all threads of the investigation in one place, which, as you might imagine, can be incredibly important when you're looking for the places where details may have fallen through the cracks. You have to keep in mind 
This all took place in the early 1990s, much before the advantages offered by the internet as we know it today. Even the local news coverage, which did focus on the case for years, presented new information as it became available. It was spread over the course of several decades. National television shows and other media outlets have covered the main details of the case, sort of an overview, but they're limited by the need to provide the information within the span of an hour and don't offer the level of depth needed to pinpoint new leads or identify seemingly unconnected pieces that actually fit together. It's because of this that we have high hopes for this podcast and our investigation. We aim to present and follow up on every bit of information with the hope it will identify new details that point toward answers. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's start the story at the beginning. Lori Jean Deppis was born September 17, 1971 in Chilton, Wisconsin, a small community of around 4,000 residents, which sits near the eastern shore of Lake Winnebago. Surrounded by agricultural fields and pockmarked with community parks and wildlife preserves, Chilton in many ways conjures a bygone era with its quaint downtown avenue, aptly named Main Street, which runs along the tributary river that bisects the town. Growing up in this community, Lori had a childhood, which many would call typical, with her father Mark, an electrician, and mother Mary, an executive assistant, providing Lori a safe and stable home. Friends and family note that Lori was endearing from even a young age. She developed a bubbly, outgoing personality and was quick to laugh, a trait that would become among the first descriptors stuck in the memory of her many friends and acquaintances later in life. As one would later state, Lori was a curious, fun-loving person who always had a long line of friends waiting to spend time with her. In 1987, when Lori was in her mid-teens, her parents Mark and Mary separated. Lori and her mother moved to nearby Appleton, Wisconsin, located on the northwestern shore of Lake Winnebago, where Lori attended Appleton East High School. She developed a passion for music, listening to pop and rock music from bands like U2, Modern English, and Sinead O'Connor. Later in life, her mother noted, Lori didn't even keep a TV in her apartment, opting instead to spend any time indoors listening and dancing to her records. Lori continued to keep a busy social calendar, developing close friendships with many people at Appleton East. Each would note that she was truly a unique person who seemed to have a knack for leaving a lasting impression. But I don't, I can't even explain, and I don't think there's been a single person since that I have had that kind of a relationship with, but she was just somebody, I don't know, you could just be so stupid and we would just drive around and we would go get greasy, yummy food and just be covered and going through millions of napkins, but sitting at like Riverside park and Nina just at night with, you know, mowing down and talking and laughing and listening to music and, you know, sometimes it'd be going to a friend. That's Victoria, one of Lori's closest friends. In 1990, Lori graduated from Appleton East High School and enrolled at University of Wisconsin Center Fox Valley. After four months at the university, Lori decided to take some time off from her studies. 
She hadn't yet made a decision on what she wanted to do career-wise and opted to spend some time working while she considered where she wanted her future path to lead. At the time, Mary, Lori's mom, was soon to be remarried and was moving to Winnicani, Wisconsin. So when she left the university, Lori chose to move in with her father, Mark, in Fond du Lac, another nearby city where Mark had been working as an electrician at a local hospital for many years. She would stay in Fond du Lac for about nine months, working and saving money, before she moved into her own apartment once again in Appleton in early 1992. It's now August 19, 1992. The era of big hair, scrunchies, and fluorescent clothing though still widespread, is slowly being overtaken by that of flannel shirts, ripped jeans, and Birkenstocks or Doc Martens. Others sport the off-center hats, loose-fit, and bold primary colors portrayed in Will Smith's The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, a popular show at the time. End of the Road by Boys to Men has just replaced Madonna's This Used to Be My Playground and the long-running Sir Mix-a-Lot hit Baby Got Back at the top of the Billboard music charts while the counterculture grunge scene gathers steam in the wake of the 1991 release of Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit and the rise of others, such as Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. President George H.W. Bush and his running mate Dan Quayle are locked in a re-election battle with Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton and his Vice President hopeful Al Gore. Though their official slogan is, For People, For Change, the Clinton camp has just found an effective message in its unofficial rallying cry. It's the economy, stupid, which would propel the candidate to victory later that year. While presidential politics is focused on the economy, the eye of the American public is held by another major topic, crime and its punishment. Earlier in the year, the country was shaken by the acquittal of three Los Angeles police officers charged with the 1991 beating of Rodney King, an act caught on camera, while a fourth officer charged in the event received a hung jury. The resulting riot spanned six days with near-constant media coverage and required the involvement of the California Army National Guard and the Marine Corps before it was brought to an end. The classic Western film, Unforgiven, which features an all-star cast including Clint Eastwood, Gene Hackman, Morgan Freeman, and Richard Harris, had just been released in theaters. With its plot centered on the gruesome murder of a prostitute, the film finds critical acclaim amid a wave of other violent crime-oriented films that year, a roster that includes Reservoir Dogs, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Bad Lieutenant, and Basic Instinct, starring Richard Gere and Sharon Stone. In March, the serial killer classic The Silence of the Lambs had received the Oscar for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Despite this national focus on crime, and even though residents in the local Wisconsin area had closely followed significant coverage of two disappearances in recent years, the 1989 abduction of Jacob Wetterling from just outside Minneapolis, Minnesota, and even more locally, the 1990 disappearance of Barrett Beck from Fond du Lac. Lori Deppis drove to work on August 19, 1992, amid the general public sentiment that violent crimes were acts that occurred elsewhere. Their perpetrators resided in bigger cities in dangerous neighborhoods where drugs or gangs ran rampant. Far from the hard-working, blue-collar villages of Nina, Kakana, Menasha, Appleton, and Oshkosh, which comprise Wisconsin's Fox Cities, named for the Fox River, 
which meanders north through the valley that spans from Lake Winnebago to Green Bay. In 1992, Appleton, Wisconsin could have represented any number of suburban American cities. The sixth largest city in the state, Appleton's dotted with parks, churches, historical sites, and riverside attractions in addition to its many packaging and shipping facilities that support the region's main economy of paper manufacturing. Residents felt safe. Crime reports in the local newspaper covered acts of vandalism and petty thievery and debated the potential nuisance of unsupervised teens at the local mall. There was crime, of course, but many living in the Fox River Valley seemed to enjoy a blissful lack of awareness. For many like Victoria, August 19, 1992 marks the day that that changed. I would have never stopped to think that I could possibly get abducted while I'm, you know, hanging out in the parking lot, just oblivious. I'm not, it wasn't until after that moment, I am very, I've been very vigilant. My daughter, unfortunately, when she was born years later, um, I realized I raised her to be so stranger danger aware to almost a detriment. Like it was affecting how she interacted with people she didn't want to interact with. And I was like, wait, 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 we're too much on the, like, it's okay. You can talk to somebody. I'm right here. You don't have to growl or grimace at that. Like it was just, it was cause I was so protective of her. I'm like, we're not, no, no. <laughs> From my standpoint, like I said, I was, I was, uh, you know, in grad school at the time that was, you know, the age that I was at. I can't imagine what people who had children thought, um, you know, mothers, uh, fathers at, at the time and how they felt about, you know, all of the disappearances of, of people at the time. Um, I very- That's Kira Shawhorn, who, though a graduate student at the time of Lori's disappearance, would ultimately become the agent in charge of the later investigation for nearly a decade. We'll hear a lot more from her later. August 19, a Wednesday began like any other day for 20-year-old Lori Deppis. She was scheduled to work at noon and spent her pre-shift hours at home, talking to friends and family and getting ready for the day. Lori's mother, Mary, recalled speaking with Lori on the phone that morning, noting that nothing out of the ordinary was discussed. We talked about when we'd get together for lunch, just things mother and daughters talk about, she would later tell a reporter for the local newspaper. Lori's friend and mentor, 31-year-old Mary Hansen Pokey, also recalled speaking to Lori on the morning of the 19th. In an article published a month later, Hansen Pokey noted that she and Lori were extremely close, that Lori spent so much time at her house, she would sometimes tell Mary where to find her own household items that she was looking for. She knew my house better than I did. She did her laundry here, Mary was quoted in the article. Around 11.30 that morning, Mary said that she and Lori spoke on the phone. It would have been just before Lori left for work. Mary said she and Lori discussed their relationship and the time they'd been spending together and both agreed they needed a little more time apart. In Mary's words, quote, we said it's okay. It's time to let go of each other a little bit, end quote. She was unaware that this would be their very last conversation. At noon... Lori arrived at her job at the graffiti store inside the Fox River Mall in Appleton. Graffiti, as Lori's very close friend and co-worker Victoria describes, was a unique, trendy place 
that primarily catered to late teens and younger adults. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we were down in the J.C. Penney wing and um, graffiti was like Spencer, like an elevated Spencer gifts. So like we had an 18 only section, right? We had the big subway posters. Like that's where you got a subway poster of Jane's addiction. Like nobody else was selling Jane's addiction posters, right? But we would sell those huge subway posters and we had cards and then our 18 and over, we had dirty cards. Um, But we literally just had a small section like that, but it was really music. And we had like at the time, I think the kid was, 19 years old that was somebody that we knew and we're like yeah sure we got approval from whoever and he came in and literally he was an airbrush artist and he came in and graffitied the walls and we were also the store that rocked music all day long and the mall when we closed at night and everybody shut their gates down everybody else quieted down because we blared our music because we had a awesome stereo system and you could hear it all the way down by the Sears wing. At 5 p.m., Lori takes her break at work. Mark Trubenbach, Lori's boyfriend of roughly three months, meets Lori outside the store in the mall corridor. The pair eat dinner and then walk together through the mall to a jewelry store where a red garnet ring catches Mark's eye. Lori reserves it on layaway for him. Before returning to the store after break, Lori tells Mark that they've been invited to join her co-worker, Tammy, and other friends for a movie at Tammy's house that night. Mark agrees. The two make plans to meet at Mark's apartment after work and will head to Tammy's from there. Having not worked with Victoria the day before, Lori makes sure she knows about the plan. So... I hadn't seen Lori since like the day before we were not working with each other on that particular day. Um, but we were, well, then, then she starts calling me during her shift going, Hey, cause she was at work with Tammy and, um, she's like, Hey, we're going to go watch a movie at Tammy's. Do you want to go? And I'm like, I'm like, who's, who's all going, who's this we? And she's like, well, Mark and I, and then Tammy and Troy, Tammy and Troy are not dating, but they, they're like joined at the hip best friends. And I go, I'm not doing that. Like, I'm not going to be fifth wheel. No, you know, you guys go watch your movie. She's like, no, no, no. I didn't see you all day yesterday. I'm not going to date without seeing you. You're coming, you're coming. And you're not going to be a third wheel because you're my first wheel. And Mark will be the third wheel. I'm like, oh my God, this person. So after multiple times of begging me, I finally agreed and said, fine, you know, and then I was supposed to meet her at Mark's after work. Lori finishes her shift and at 9 p.m. begins to go through the routine tasks of closing the store with Tammy. They discover an issue with the store's computer system and are having trouble completing the final steps for the night. Lori reaches back out to Victoria for assistance. She had also called me to tell me that she had bought that bought a ring for Mark. And I was like, what are you talking? I'm like, because I was stealing food from my house and bringing it to her house. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? You bought a ring. Ah. Um, and she's like, you know, because, you know, she had strong feelings. I think they had just said, I love you to each other um, for the first time. So, and she was meaning she had just met his parents. Um, and so she bought like, I don't know, like a $200, $250, like garnet style kind of ring or something for him. And I'm like, okay, so she was picking it up and 
whatever. And then next time I talk to her, it's because they are, they are struggling with shutting down the register for the night. And so I'm troubleshooting on the phone. I'm like, da, 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 this and this, try it. Did you do this? Okay. You got to do this now, whatever. Running through that whole thing for her and Tammy. They finally go, okay, we got it. Now we're going to finish closing down and doing everything. So I should be over there. So meet us there. And then we'll, we'll go to Tammy's. Okay. Lori also calls Mark to let him know she's working late to sort out the computer problem. She doesn't want him to worry when she's not on time. She lets him know they're taking a little longer than usual, but that she plans to head to his apartment when she's finished. It takes Lori and Tammy about a half an hour to finish closing the store. Tammy would later report to police that the pair left graffiti around 9.54 or 9.55 p.m. and walked together to the mall parking lot where their cars were parked. At 9.56, Tammy sees Lori leave the mall in her gray 1984 Volkswagen Rabbit. Lori heads east on College Avenue. Tammy, heading home, exits the mall in another direction, turning south onto US-41. Tammy had no idea she'd be the very last person, other than the perpetrator, to see Lori ever again. Lori drove towards Mark's apartment. Her friends, completely unaware of what would unfold, prepare for the night's plans. So eventually I leave my where I my house and I go to Mark's apartment. And in Mark's apartment, there's an apartment, his apartment building's here. There's another apartment building here, and there is like parking spaces this day, this way, right? With a curb in between. So the people that park here go to this apartment, right? And I pull in and I'm like, well, I don't see Lori's car yet, so. Although you can't see it, Victoria's describing two apartment buildings separated by a curving drive with an expanded paved lot for a handful of parking spaces near the closest point to each building. It's similar to what you'd see at any number of apartment complexes. She notes that Lori's car is not yet in the lot, so she heads to another apartment in the same complex where another friend lives. So I go over to my friend's apartment that's in this apartment building on this side. So I park on this side, go in there, hang out for a little bit, come out, and still don't see Lori's car. And I'm like, okay. So I puts her on my car a little bit, grab some stuff, exchange some things, and then cross over to the parking lot and then go to Mark's. This, okay, this is where I would think if somebody was just sitting to take anybody, I'm five, one and a quarter. At the time, I'm like a hundred pounds. Somebody wanted to just take anybody, I'm oblivious. I'm not looking for anything because I was still growing up in the Fox Valley that that's not going to happen here. So going to Mark's, I'm up there by Mark's. He's living with his sister at the time, sitting on the couch. And I hear Lori's car come up because if you've ever heard of Volkswagen Rabbit, you know, they're not quiet. It's worth mentioning here that all members of the group confirmed that they heard Lori's car pull in. The muffler on a rabbit was distinctive and loud. 
Consistent with the drive from Fox River Mall, Victoria, Mark, and Lisa would recall to police that this occurred around 10.15 p.m. So I hear her car come up and I get up, I go over to the patio doors and it took me a long time to release the guilt feeling and the, it's not my fault. I get up, I go over to the patio door, I open it this much and then I shut it and I go, she'll be up in a couple of minutes. So the agony of going, had I gone out on the balcony to yell and shout something stupid like I had originally planned, I either would have seen something or avoided it altogether. That was a really, and really I'm just honestly convincing myself that I can't think that way because I'm smart enough to know that I shouldn't think that way, but it's hard to not. So I sit back down and Mark's doing like, I don't know, making us drinks before we go or something being Mark in the kitchen. So, um, I'm just sitting there talking to his sister and all of a sudden he's like, dude, like, where is she? And I'm like, what is taking so long? And this is now when we do go out in the balcony, see the car, see the cup. And we're sitting there yelling for her, but then nothing. And so Mark goes, since they don't see Lori from the balcony or hear a response when they call to her, the group heads downstairs to the parking lot. There they confirm it's Lori's car, but they don't see her anywhere nearby. They check Lori's car and find it locked. Her purse appears to be inside, which strikes them as strange as the group had begun to speculate that Lori had walked to a nearby gas station for cigarettes. On top of the car, they find a styrofoam cup of soda, condensation running down the side in little rivulets as the ice inside has not yet melted. Despite finding her purse in the car, Victoria and the others still assume that Lori's just walked away to buy cigarettes, or maybe find a place to smoke. They begin to walk around the building and surrounding apartments, hoping to run into her. As the minutes pass, they become increasingly concerned. And so Mark goes downstairs, I follow him downstairs, we're looking around the car, it's locked up, so there goes fingerprints. And... Um, he starts walking around the complex, dumpsters all over the place, shouting, looking. He gets into his car. I think he starts looking at the gas station or whatever. We eventually go and drive all the way back to her apartment because, like, why would she go over to Menasha and park her car and whatever? It's somehow end up over on Prospect, way over there. We start driving all over the place. There's no sign of Lori. After an extensive search, visiting any location Victoria and Mark think Lori may have possibly gone, the group's concern turns to fear, a dawning realization that something more nefarious may have occurred, despite little physical evidence pointing to anything too far out of the ordinary. They hadn't heard Lori call out or scream in fear after she arrived. There were no discarded items or mess lying about, no sign of a struggle near her car or anywhere else as they looked. But this wasn't like Lori. She wasn't one to disappear without notice. She would have yelled up to her friends, confident they'd hear her, before running off on an errand, Victoria theorized. Victoria was not aware of the exact timing of their search, but estimated it was around, or a little after 11 p.m., 
that the group called the town of Menasha Police Department to report the situation. In fact, records show that the group searched for her even longer than Victoria suspected. Mark placed the call to police closer to 11.45 p.m. The three friends had exhausted all of their ideas of where Lori could have gone over nearly an hour and a half of searching. Something was definitely wrong. We have this timeline, a very tight timeline of knowing when she left the mall, when she got to her destination at the apartment in the town of Menasha. Um, her friends are there waiting for her. They hear her arrive. We know she, you know, her vehicle at least arrived. And three minutes later, five minutes later, no sight of her. She's gone. It's like she was, you know, just vanished. Next time on Cold Case Frozen Tundra. Especially early on, that really makes you a person think, well, it was somebody that she knew. It was somebody who she wasn't afraid of. It was someone she didn't scream when they approached her. Um, That's certainly one of the possibilities, one of the first possibilities that you would think of. Um, So I believe that he followed her and his rejection, followed her, and wanted to be like, can we just talk, you know, whatever, you know, try to like, whatever. And she might like sit down in his car and then who knows? To keep up with all the latest episodes of this podcast, be sure to hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you'd like to do us a favor and leave a positive review, It'd be much appreciated. And if you want even more of Cold Case Frozen Tundra, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Frozen Tundra Podcast. You can also check us out online at FrozenTundraPodcast.com, where you'll find even more information on the case in our show. We'd like to thank Victoria, Kira, and the DCI, along with the many friends, family members, and concerned citizens who have helped provide information on this case. Our theme music is composed by Mario Cole 06 and is available on Pixabay. All other guitar and bass parts are my own.